All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode three of the Full Stack Radio podcast, where we talk to people in the software industry about everything from CSS and user experience to unit testing and system administration. Uh, I'm Adam Wathen, as always, and I'm here today with Matt Machugo. What's up, Matt? Hello. How are you? Uh, great, man. You? Ah, doing well. Cool. So um, the way we usually start the show is if you could just kind of give us a little brief background on you know what you do and what you're excited about these days. All right, so I'm Matt Machuga. I'm a software developer at Think Through Math. Uh, it's a company that helps students learn math a little bit better from like roughly third grade to 12th grade, depending on where they fall. I'm also a course developer for Tuts Plus on the side, um, mostly courses involving Rails and Laravel. And I primarily work with Ruby and JavaScript these days. Um, as far as things I'm excited about, I mostly work with... Uh, some of the new front-end frameworks just to try to find out what I like and I would like to see things move towards the new web components and things like that on the web. So it's like a lot of research on uh, new concepts. I also really like messing with Clojure and Clojure scripts. That's a, that's a fun time. Awesome. Cool. So I think like what I was kind of hoping to chat with you about was just kind of what it's like being a Ruby developer who actually keeps up with the PHP community, because that seems to be a bit of a rare thing. What kind of keeps you interested in the PHP world as someone who writes Ruby full-time? Uh, mostly it's because of the fact that PHP was kind of my primary language for so long. And the Laravel community has kind of evolved over time. Uh, when I started getting involved, it was largely in the CodeIgniter community, and then people started migrating off, and it was kind of scattering a little bit. Some people were going towards Kohana, some people were going towards Fuel, and then Laravel started to come around and get a little bit more popular, so most of the crew went over there. So I actually started getting lonely and then wanted to hang out with everybody, so I would hang out in the Laravel IRC room and not have anything to do with it. Like <laughs> I just sat around to talk to people, and I learned a lot just by listening. So when the time came for me to actually use Laravel, I pretty much knew how to use it already. So it was a really quick adoption. Were you already like doing rail stuff as your day job when this was happening? It was kind of like half and half. I was actually a, uh, a rails developer and a PHP developer. It was uh, mostly like a code igniter and a fuel job. So I'd like kind of go back and forth depending on what it, what it was at the time. Cause I worked for a consultancy. So you know how those jobs come in. It's just kind of whatever they need done, pick yeah. one of the two languages and make it work. Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it is pretty interesting for someone to be writing Ruby all day and still being interested in PHP <laughs> because, uh, that doesn't seem to be something that people are usually doing. If you were to start like a personal project, would you reach for rails or would you reach for Laravel? So I just started a, a rails project. <laughs> so I guess like in general, I will reach for rails because I enjoy working with Ruby more. And because there's certain things that rails will give me out of the gate that, even though Laravel provides them, it's still like a little bit different. And I'm just used to generating them the certain Rails way. And that's not to say I use the Rails generators, but it's just the fact that the way Rails puts things in by default, I expect those and I work with those. That being said, if I'm if I'm hosting a site, like um, I made a band site for one of my friends who like we used to be in a band together. And uh, he just needed a site where he could promote band materials, list shows, um, have bios for the members and whatnot. So I just made that a quick Laravel 4 site, and it sits up there and doesn't use any resources. It just takes up whatever Nginx and uh, PHP FPM take up. So it's, it's kind of whatever works. Yeah, so for me, like that's kind of been the barrier that's kept me from diving headfirst into some other web frameworks and stuff in other languages is just the fact that coming from PHP where everything is just so damn easy to deploy and 
um, you know, the server costs are so low and there's just so many less things you need to know to like maintain something that's being served on PHP. And with a lot of the advancements to the language that we've got in the last like three years or so, it's actually become a pretty like enjoyable environment to work in. But mm-hmm. I definitely keep up with the Ruby community pretty closely because it seems like they're usually talking about a lot of ideas that are really applicable to what I do as a PHP developer and are really usually easy to port over. Um, is there anything that you prefer about PHP, like over working in Ruby? Uh, usually the low resource consumption when it's sitting idle. That's kind of nice if you have like a low resource uh I don't want to say low resource, I guess a low visiting site. Like if you don't have a lot of traffic running through it and it's just sitting on a server that, you know, maybe you're hosting your IRC bouncer or something on, it doesn't take any resources unless you're actually serving a web request. If you have a Ruby process on there, it's consuming a certain amount of memory to fulfill what Rails needs at any given time. It's kind of like a JVM process is sitting out there. So uh, I'm trying to give you like an honest answer of something I prefer. And it's like... Both of the languages have pros and cons, but I tend to think in a Ruby-like way. So a lot of the things that I might have used in like a static compiled language, I don't feel like PHP needs that. Like um, I think somebody was giving me some flack yesterday in the room, like Ruby doesn't have interfaces or type pending. I'm like, no, it's just something we don't need. Um, Like Ruby's a message passing language. So as long as something can receive the message, it does not care what it is. And some people find that like fragile, but you know, Smalltalk used to work like that. So it's not a bad thing. It's just that Java had to overcome certain needs. So that's why it had certain functionality. Yep. Uh, what do you think it is that's kind of led the PHP community down that path of wanting to write code as if it's a statically typed language that hasn't happened in like the other dynamic languages? It's kind of weird to see, you know, the Ruby community definitely thinks more in like the small talk way where it seems like a lot of people in the PHP community are trying to apply some of the patterns and stuff that we see in the Java world and the C sharp world. Um, honestly, I think it's because a lot of the, the people who are submitting the RFPs came from a Java background. Um, like I know a lot of those folks are also C developers because they work on the core, but a lot of those backgroundy things, like we want type hints, we want interfaces. Um, a lot of those do come from the fact that they were probably Java developers before this. Now that's not to say it's bad in any way. It's just like, if that's what you knew before and you can see the way that your object model might benefit from it, it might make sense to add it in. And, um, you know, PHP does some things with it, like with all the array, um, the array implementation interfaces and iterable and things like that. So that kind of makes sense where they're used, but it's just, it's not a required thing. It's just a way for the PHP compile time to actually know what it's doing. So if I had to guess, it's mostly just because of the Java backgrounds. Why do you think people in the Ruby community don't seem to care so much about having things like explicit interfaces in the language? I know that was something that surprised me when I first started getting into Ruby because it was the first, I guess, dynamic language that I'd used that acts like a dynamic language, unlike Mm -hmm. PHP. I don't know. Like, why do you think people don't care about that stuff as much over there? So now I got to eat my own words because, again, these people came from Java quite often. (laughs) (laughs) And it seems like this camp was tired of all the explicitness and all the extra work that they had to do with Java. Um, and that's the the common story that you'll hear of a Rubyist will say like, well, I, I used to build enterprise systems in Java and it was like a lot of explicitness. It was a lot of uh, verbosity and I came to Ruby and I could just write elegantly. I could write what I expected. And um, 
you know, that kind of took them so far. And then like, once you get into an enterprise sized application, you realize it doesn't really matter what language it's written in. It's going to need certain structures regardless. And once you get to that size, that's where using things like interfaces and whatnot makes sense when you're on a team. So it's kind of like uh, screwed if you do, screwed if you don't kind of thing. I think like one of the things I like the most about explicit interfaces in PHP is if I'm building a package or something that I want to be able to share with people and uh, there's some components that maybe make sense for people to provide their own implementations for, like your interfaces, your explicit interface file serves really good documentation for what someone else would need to implement in order to create something that's compatible with what you're doing. Is that something that happens as often in the Ruby world? Like I feel like since Ruby, basically anyone who's writing Ruby for the web is using rails or Sinatra, right? And the vast majority are using rails. This interoperability side of things hasn't come up as maybe as much of a big deal or I don't know. What is your thoughts on that? Like I haven't played enough with the language at a, you know, professional level to have to kind of come to these realizations on my own. So I'm hoping maybe you can educate me a little bit. Well, so there's like a few tools in Ruby and, um, we can kind of get into why they may or may not be bad, um, in a little bit, but if you look at, so this is probably going to ruffle some feathers elsewhere, but when we have interfaces in PHP, we also have some sort of base class that we can look at to that implements this, or I shouldn't even say a base class, just some sort of static interface that we can look at and says, all right, this class implements this method that does these things. If I want to replace it, I need to replace these methods. The way you can assume what is safe to replace is if you override a public method, or if you implement a public method in some class, you should probably assume you're going to need that method somewhere. So if you subclass from it, you get it from free. If you just want to swap it out with some other object and use polymorphism, then you should probably implement those methods just to be safe. Um, With an interface, you kind of have a guaranteed contract, like you're saying. You say, okay, I, I only need these three methods. I can ignore maybe the other two that I saw on there. But at that point, you start to wonder, is my public interface on this object too big? Like, do I really need the extra two public? Is it giving me any benefit? Um, should they also be part of this contract? So in Ruby, we just kind of like look at a, an object that we're trying to replace and say, well, it's using uh, a method, we'll say display, for example. As long as I tack on a method named display, it's going to receive it anyway. And Ruby's pretty good about knowing what it needs. And this is going to sound like child's play with PHP, but um, if we know we need a method that's not implemented, usually in the base class, we raise an exception that just says it's not there to where the interface would squawk at us in PHP. So the compiler would tell us, but with Ruby, you can reopen classes. So um, I can add new methods to the string class as I please. And this is where Ruby gets like a lot of flack. Like a lot of people do not like this because it's called monkey patching. So if I want, I can change the plus operator of any integer to, you know, do something random. I can just have it return 42 every time. Yeah, yeah. So, if you treat it responsibly, you can get a lot of power out of it. But in general, a lot of the Ruby community is starting to back away because we started to get bit pretty hard from this kind of stuff. Yeah, I know. Like um, Sometimes I've wished we had monkey patching in PHP only really to simplify testing in some cases where mm-hmm. something that is really untestable without monkey patching could be made 
testable. And the solution usually, right, is to alter your design or change your architecture in some way, inject some dependency somewhere so that you can replace it with a testable. I mean, in Ruby, you can just kind of just replace things willy-nilly whenever you want. What is your opinion on that? Have you seen, like, are there negative consequences to doing that in a Rails app, or do you usually end up with something that's still uh, pretty maintainable? You know, a lot of the arguments for uh, making something more testable in a statically typed way that you end up having to do it with PHP is not that you're just making it easier to test. It's that there's all these other architectural benefits that you're supposed to get by default from that. Do you actually see those happening in the Ruby world where you can just monkey patch stuff? Uh, There's definitely a spectrum there of like where the tolerances will start to give out either direction. Yeah. Um, I feel if you go too far in the way where you don't take advantage of any of the monkey patching or any of the, any of the extra bonuses that some of the testing libraries can give you in Ruby, then you're not really taking advantage of the language and you should probably be using a different one. But if you go too far, then you have no guarantees on what your software is going to do at any given point. So you could have some really sketchy stuff happening. So Um, I'll give an example. We have uh, feature flags in our application and we started to wrap the object. um, You know, it's just like an extra layer that we can safely stub out. Okay. And when we use it, we actually stub out a method on the class. So we'll say like feature flags dot stub, and then we'll call out the active method Mm -hmm. and then we'll just pass in whatever parameter we want. So we can tell if, or I'm sorry, we can fake out if, uh, let's say feature flag X is active Mm -hmm. that way. I don't actually have to go into say Redis or a file store or something to set the flag. Yeah. I can just make the class think that it's fine for that request. And then, you know, at the end of that test run, it's going to throw it away. So, you know, things like that are pretty handy. Or, um, if I want to add like title casing to strings, um, rails does that. Uh, I can add like first, second, third, fourth, and fifth to arrays, which, you know, people kind of look at that. They're like, why would you ever need that? But it's kind of handy because mm-hmm. sometimes you do need the second object in an array. And then I don't know if you knew this, but like way back in the day, somebody on Reddit was giving DHA some snark over the one, two, three, four, five count for it, like first through fifth. Yeah. So he added 42. Yeah, I heard about <laughs> that. Yeah, so it was like a neat little thing that's still in the code base. So. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. I've actually, have you seen that talk that DHH gave at uh, one of the Ruby comps called Why Ruby? The yeah. one where he's talking about like why you should trust people with it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I thought that was like a really awesome way to talk about the benefits that come from a dynamic language and how really you shouldn't just rely on the language to solve problems that are problems that should be solved by people on the team just like having discipline like you're trading off a lot of these extra benefits like uh just because one person might do something wrong one time right like the analogy he gives of like you know because one person tried to sneak a bomb in their shoe onto an airplane now every single person in the world has to take their shoes off every single time they get onto an airplane is that like a reasonable reaction and that was kind of eye-opening to me because i think that um even in php how we have like interfaces and type hinting that stuff isn't as uh, bulletproof as people think. Like, there's a little bit of security theater happening there. Like, I read an article a little while ago talking about how explicit interfaces don't really cover everything that a contract between two objects really entails, right? Like, especially in PHP, if you're just saying these are the five methods that anything implemented in this interface has to implement, you can implement all those, all five of those methods, but that collaborator 
that implementation still might not behave the way that an implementation has to behave. Like the example that he gave was, say you're um, implementing different types of a stack, right? And a stack has like some fundamental properties. You can like push something onto a stack, you can pop something off a stack, and you can check the size of the stack, say. And there's like a law that if you have a stack and you pop something off of it, its size should be one less than the size that it was before. And there's no way that you can explicitly describe a rule like that with an interface. So someone could implement it in totally the wrong way and you could use that in your application and it could still break everything. There's no, you can't just implicitly trust that things are going to work the way you expect them to. You know what I mean? Right. So I thought that was like an an interesting way to think about things. And it kind of led me down a path of changing my attitude on a lot of stuff because I used to use type hinting in PHP a lot more than I do now. And the reason I kind of stopped was there's a lot of cases where maybe you want to implement or maybe you want to like decorate something and you want to take advantage of like the magic methods and stuff like that to just delegate to stuff that like can't be passed in as like something that would satisfy a type hint now because the type hint is expecting, you know, certain methods to exist on some interface where even though your implementation technically does satisfy that interface because it replies to every method that could ever exist in the world, PHP will still uh, be upset with you. Right. Right. So, you know, there's definitely a trade off between taking advantage of the features that are made available to you in a dynamic language and uh, trying to take advantage of, you know, the kind of so-called bulletproofing that maybe you get from uh, more statically typed code. Yeah, uh, it's it's like one of those weird dances, right? Like, you, you know, at some point, what you assume is going to be safe is actually not safe. Mm-hmm. But you, you try to build up the walls. And we actually had some guy in, uh, in Laravel in the IRC room the other day who was doing everything possible to prevent his developers from ever touching the database layer, like trying to prevent like really weird stuff, like no access to PDO at all. And we kept telling him like, you just have to build an interface and trust your developers. Like there's a certain point at no matter what safeguards you put in place, your, your developers can still get around them. Yeah, totally. Like you can't just block off a class entirely from somebody unless it's in a binary. And even then, like, really, you can just get a disassembler and then, like, peel it apart and figure yeah. out what calls you yeah. need. No matter anyway. what. Yeah. There's, like, so, there's nothing more powerful than really, like, educating people. Uh, like, no type hinting system or no static language is going to make up for being able to trust the people that you work with and have faith in the quality of code that they're going to write. And right. I think I think people go down that path maybe too often sometimes, like... Um, I had a discussion with Taylor in uh, IRC one day because uh, when the whole repository thing got really popular in the PHP world, people were talking about how, and I I was guilty of this too, and this was my opinion at the beginning, was that people were taking um, an active record implementation like Eloquent, right, and wrapping that in a repository layer, but inside the repository, they're just using the active record call to go fetch the stuff from the database, and then they returned the active record object from the repository. And my original thought and a lot of people's thoughts were that, you know, you're kind of defeating the whole purpose of your repository here because you're still returning objects that can talk to the database and know how to save themselves. And, you know, if some developer on your team decides to call user.save in the controller, then they can still do it. Mm -hmm. But uh, 
I don't think that introducing a whole other layer of mapping that maps active record objects to plain PHP objects and returns those from the repository just to prevent that one dude on your team from calling the wrong method in the wrong place is a reasonable force. You know yeah. what I mean? And uh, for a long time, I kind of just settled on that as being, you know, okay, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Just like have some discipline, uh, trust that the people on your team are going to do the right thing. But then when I started to think about it even more, I don't know how, like, have you written a lot of code in like C Sharp or Java? No, I haven't even touched C++ in years. Well, in like C Sharp and Java, um, you have return types, of course, right? Um, which we don't have in PHP, but even if we did, um, and you can say that your user repository, for example, is supposed to return a user interface, not like a specific user implementation. And if your user interface defines all the behavior that a user has, but doesn't include any of the active record methods, and then you implement that interface with the active record user, if you return that active record user from that method, because the method is returning a user interface, any code that's calling that still can't call the save method, even though the underlying object behind that interface has that save method because the compiler will throw up at you because you're trying to access a method that doesn't exist on the interface. So it seemed kind of funny to me that we were trying to introduce all this extra workaround stuff in PHP to make sure that those methods didn't exist. And PHP is kind of a more relaxed dynamic language, but in a statically typed language, you know, where there's all these rules, you actually could just return the active record implementation and things, you know, wouldn't, uh, people wouldn't be able to do what you didn't want them to do. So why do we jump through all these extra hoops in a language that's supposed to be less verbose and more relaxed than what people are doing in, you know, the statically typed (laughs) languages. So, I totally changed my tune on that. That's everything in a nutshell, right? Like, yeah, that's my biggest thing. And that's why I mentioned earlier, like if you get to a, a point where you start implementing things from other languages, mm-hmm. after you cross a certain threshold, you should probably just use that language. Like there's great things about having a real type system and PHP is just not capable of doing that. We have type hints and that's great, but they're only going to take you so far and they're only meant to take you so far. Yeah. Like you don't have to, you don't have to re-implement a compiler in PHP. And uh, like in Ruby, there's something where it's an actual library called contracts or something close to that, where um, they implement something like an interface or something like a contract where you can specify a return type. If you want, you can specify um, what you accept in as your parameters and things like that. And it just happens at runtime. Mm-hmm. So it's not fast, but it's not terribly slow either. But really at that point, is that what you want to be working with? You know, like sometimes it is if you have a really sensitive part of the application, but there's a certain, I keep saying like the same thing over, but it's like really important. There's, it's all oscillating on a scale. And after you hit a certain point, it makes sense to use the right tool. And I think a lot of it just comes down to culture, like kind of how we were saying, if you're doing everything to protect one person on your team, or let's say like an intern or, you know, just someone who's not as experienced as you are, or they just haven't touched that part of the application that much there's still an expectation that you're going to kind of instruct or lead or uh, at least show them the right way to do it. Like we have a culture at think through math where we kind of develop as a cohesive unit. Like we work on our own individual parts, but every day somebody has to code review a pull request or, you know, whatever gets assigned to you. So you always have a second pair of eyes. Sometimes you have a third and fourth pair of eyes, depending on what you're working on. And, you know, nobody gets mad at you for doing something a certain way. It's just like, Hey, uh, you don't really want to be calling this object in this way. You're kind of, you're violating the law of Demeter, for example. 
So like, hey, you, you're five dots deep here. You might want to back up and like stop working on the relations and just fetch it at a safer level. So you're like, oh, you know, that's a great idea. I didn't catch that. Or um, we have like certain parts of the application that they involve a lot of testing. So we try to keep it disconnected from Rails just for the whole like Rails fast test thing. Because um, our, our app takes a long time to boot. It's got a lot of dependencies, including like Solar and some other runtimes. So it's like if we can, and it's just a plain Ruby object, we keep the Rails stuff out and if somebody starts introducing a Rails concept by accident, we're like, hey, no, no, just like kind of back that out, use this method instead, and it prevents Rails from trying to load that in. So it's just like different things. Like, I just don't feel like I would want to work in a culture where people feel like they have to shelter me from the world rather than just telling me, hey, use it this way, or at least like after the fact, tell me, hey, uh, you just need to change this couple pieces of code here because we don't do it that way anymore, which you're going to run into that kind of code rot anywhere. So even if the compiler catches most things, kind of like how you were saying earlier, there's something else that could bite you down the chain. It's just like compiler is not meant for that. Yeah. I think like, to me, it's like the difference between making someone, you know, put on their helmet, their elbow pads, their knee pads, and the wrist guards when they go rollerblading versus just like, don't rollerblade in like crazy, treacherous, gravelly areas where you're going to fall right. over. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, don't go in the sand. Stay out of the water pit. Like, just direct them a little bit Mm -hmm. that being said though i have noticed that uh in the ruby community lately there has been some trends towards uh reconsidering some of the concepts and stuff that you see in some of the more statically typed languages like java is obviously the best example because Mm -hmm. i feel like like you were kind of saying before it seems like the early ruby community a lot of the opinions there were like a kind of a reaction to what people were sick of in the java world right so it was almost like swinging it totally the other way it's like let's throw out everything like when i was first like learning more about ruby the fact that people would say negative things about dependency injection as a concept was seemed so crazy to me like i thought that was just like you know accepted as like that's the way that you uh, collaborate with other objects so that you can swap stuff out if you need to swap stuff out but people were so sick of doing it from the java days that they were like no we don't need to do that in ruby we can do this we can do that but i noticed like i don't know if you keep up with like what the thoughtbot guys do much at all mm-hmm. but uh i have a subscription to their um their like learn platform and they put up like a, a weekly video every week talking about some technical topic. And they had one a few weeks ago where they were going over a dependency injection container that they were working on, that they were going to release as a gem. And I was like, Whoa, this is like so uh, different from what I'm used to seeing in the, the Ruby world. So, I, I mean, it seems like maybe things are, people are starting to think about some of those ideas and how they can still be beneficial and stuff. I don't know. What is your opinion on that? Like even like that dependency injection and Ruby thing Like people seem to frown on it as a concept, but maybe just because of what the term means in Java instead of what it really means in real life. I don't know. Yeah. So I think it was actually on the giant robots podcast, but they had uh, Aaron Patterson on there from rails core, Ruby core and rack core. And they're talking to him about dependency injection. He's like, I actually don't know what that is. <laughs> And they're like, well, it's when you pass one object into another one, so you you have the dependency passed in. He's like, I just thought that was programming, <laughs> like you know, kind of played it off because like some people treat it like it's it's some higher level magical thing, and I think that does come from the fact that Java had a lot of IOC containers and like different options available there. Um, but when it comes down to it, we we probably do that more than we think we do, and. Um, 
I think DHH is notoriously against a lot of dependency injection for testing purposes. Like he has no problem with it when you do it in a sensible way from what I've read online. But uh, like some people, uh, what's the good example? So like if you tell a blog to publish and you're always going to use the current time, he just says like use time.now. If you open it up and you pass in uh, a new time object that could be dependency injectable just so you can fake it out in the test, I think that's kind of where... Uh, like a lot of the Rubyists will back away. Like, why would I do that? I can just use time cop and I can fake out real time in Ruby. Yeah, exactly. And then you're um, not trading off kind of the simplicity of working with the code just for the sake of testability. Right. Yeah. And like, I, I think it, it brings up a valid point, right? Because do you really want to modify your code just for tests? Yeah, I don't think you do. Right. And that's like the big complaint that people come up against, like where they're anti-TDD or they're anti-testing. Um, they don't want to worry about their structure because they don't want to modify it just because it's testable. But the main takeaway is you're just making your objects kind of loosely coupled. You're removing their dependencies on each other so you can pass dependencies in where necessary. There's way more benefits than just making it testable. But because of, uh, I guess, people who have worked with Ruby but not other statically compiled languages, they don't see the reason, oftentimes because of the way the culture has been. Like the Rails way was the Ruby way for a really long time because people would come into it, use Rails way to way, and they would just adopt that mentality. Um, and now like Rails kind of has two clearly divided camps where it's like camp A is doing things the Rails way and kind of like the DHH sanctioned way. Um, and then the other camp is doing more of like OOD style things that were kind of introduced, like, I don't want to say introduced, but kind of like brought back four years ago, roughly two to four years ago, I want to say. And like maybe a year after the hexagonal rails talk was brought up, I started to see PHP start to adopt it a lot more. So that was kind of interesting to watch the two communities uh, evolve slightly different speeds, but they kind of went towards the same cause with what their runtimes allowed. Um, so like Ruby did their thing, PHP did theirs. Um, PHP right now has a way better data mapper than Ruby has. Um, yeah, I don't even know of any data mappers in Ruby. <laughs> yeah, so that's a thing right now. Um, there was one actually called data mapper that was actually an active record implementation. Then they redid the whole thing and it's called Ruby object mapper. But I just checked this last night. I'm not sure if you were online, but I was talking with uh, a few people on IRC about it. They're actually overhauling the project again as of October. So this thing's pretty much never coming out. It's kind of like Duke Nukem forever. So, uh, I mean, I'm kind of bummed about that because I really like the idea of a, a real data mapper. But Active Record, as it works right now, is actually really good. It's just kind of uh, big. Like, it has a really big API. So why do you think it is that in the PHP world, people cannot live without doctrine like the data mapper implementation and they think active record is like pure evil but in the ruby world like no one has been motivated enough to get like a good one out there that people can actually use mm, i think some of that comes back to well there's probably two clearly defined sides where one is the culture that was there where active record was the the crown jewel of ra uh, rails and ruby where you know people would watch from the outside um in php and other languages like python like, man, that thing looks incredible. We should do something like that. Um, Django has uh, SQL Alchemy, which is not exactly the same thing. And then they have the Django ORM. And CodeIgniter tried to make Active Record, but that wound up just being a, a query builder. And, you know, it's still named wrong, but they started trying to go down that path. And Active Record seemed like a great pattern at the time, but I think it was more of the way that Rails put everything into Active Record. 
So like active record is no longer just the active record pattern. It is validations. It's, um, relations. It has a lot of stuff baked in. Like you can't really separate active relation, active model and active record and active support, even unless you're like really deep into the Ruby world and you can kind of pick apart what's what. Um, so active, active record ships with everything, like pretty much literally everything. So like a lot of people liked everything that active record was doing. And since then, yeah, I don't know, like active records kind of backed off on some things like, uh, strong parameters has taken over where we no longer set a mass assignment setting inside of the model itself. You set it inside of a controller and you pass those parameters through and rails just kind of safeguards against it in the controller layer, you know, whereas Laravel actually added the mass assignment stuff in four, I think. I can't remember if we had it in three. But, you know, like they kind of do different things. They go different directions at different speeds. So I think the worlds are just kind of, they're out of sync. And since Rails, or I'm sorry, since uh, the PHP world, we couldn't make a true active record implementation until 5.3 came about because there was no late static binding. So the data mapper pattern worked a lot better. So I think Doctrine had that time for the take up. Um, I can't remember if Doctrine 1 was a true data mapper or not, but I think it had like the basic concepts in there. Um, so, you know, like over time, Rails has tried to make things like an identity map, and that actually got yanked out because it didn't work right. And, you know, like I'm not entirely sure why the PHP world embraced the data mapper more, but I think Rubyland just kept waiting for the new data mapper rewrite. Like there were a lot of people excited about it, but they kind of aimed too high. Like they decoupled everything. So the SQL uh, relational logic was separated. You could have the same methods for a uh, like an in-memory store or a Mongo store. And if it didn't support joins, it would just shut them off and things like that. So it just aimed really high and it was a cool idea, but didn't come together. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think the only other thing that I thought maybe was a factor was just that um, two things probably. One that uh, because of the monkey patching stuff, it's just inherently easier to test Active Record in Ruby than it is in PHP. Oh, absolutely. And then the other thing being that you still can test like an Active Record implementation in PHP, but it depends on a little bit of kind of setup around it, right? Like you need to have a solid migration strategy so you can, if, if you want to test like actual active record objects and you want to and you have to test them in this environment where they exist in the database because the relationships are depending on the database and stuff like that then you need to be able to like really easily recreate that database from scratch anytime you want and you need to have your testing environment set up to be able to interact with that testing database really easily i feel like in the rails world rails ships with that sort of stuff to help you out in the first place whereas in php some of the frameworks will help you out with that. Like Laravel makes it fairly easy, but I don't know how easy it is in CodeIgniter, for example, or, or yeah. other frameworks. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, so it's it's not even really an option, or at least it's not as, as unified and there's not as one clear way to go if you have to test that sort of stuff. Yes, yeah, so that actually brings up a point um, that I, I kind of, I don't know, I just want to throw it out there, I guess. Um, the way Rails works with fixtures is each test run, it'll load them up and it kind of acts like a transaction. I shouldn't say kind of, it's a transaction. So if your database supports it, it'll load a transaction up, it'll create all of your fixtures. And then at the end of that test run, it just rolls back. So it's incredibly fast to do these actions. Yeah, you only to like, migrate the database once. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's a really wonderful thing. Um, we don't have that infrastructure yet in Laravel. And like, I'd hope that one day, like Taylor wants to add something like that. 
but there's also the legacy in PHP where people still use MySQL quite heavily and they also don't really understand the benefits between like InnoDB and uh, MyISM. So like they can't really do that. But I think MyISM handles if you try to do a rollback or whatnot, it just says like I don't support a transaction. So there's probably a way to handle that. Yeah, I mean, I've actually... I have implemented that like transactional based database testing in Laravel before, and it isn't straightforward. Um, what I ended up doing was writing like basically a custom bootstrap file that you run at the beginning of your PHP unit test suite that migrates the database for you. And then the only way to like reliably get rid of everything at the end is to do like a register shutdown function and register a custom shutdown function with PHP. That'll do it. But it's all weird stuff that you have to do kind of outside the realm of your normal test suite. Right. So- yeah. It'd be nice to just have that, like the infrastructure there. Um, Cause Taylor's really good at abstracting that stuff away from everyone else. So it's like, I, I think if anybody could do it and keep it like sane, it would be Taylor. So I think that'd be nice to see in the community. I wish I was more knowledgeable on how Symphony handled a lot of the the database related testing or even the database layer in general. Yeah, I don't like, know either. I was just about to ask if you knew how they they ran things because I know they don't have like traditional migrations and things like that, so I'm not super familiar with that. Yeah. What do you how do you feel about uh, Rails finally getting like active job now, which I thought was kind of interesting given that we've had that in like the PHP and the Laravel world for quite a while now. Right. Um so if I'm not mistaken Taylor was actually like kind of inspired for the queuing system from active job and active job is actually pretty old at this point, but they got it wrong at the, the first couple stages. So uh, right now, if I had to speculate rails has five uh, delayed job related uh, systems, like different libraries for it. Yeah. Like, like sidekick and whatever. yeah, which People should be using Sidekick, in my opinion, because so far that's like the most thorough that I've seen. But there's also other there's other good ones like Rescue and things like that. But a lot of those had weird little behaviors that I guess were hard to get a good driver down for. So like, kind of like the way uh, SQLite does weird renaming of columns, where you have to drop the entire column, bring it back, you have to like store it off to a temporary thing. Yeah, so like. Active job has actually been around for a long time. It's just like it wasn't ready. So, you know, like it seems like Laravel came out with it first and they did release it first, but I think Ruby had a lot more legacy behind it that it had to try to bring in. Where Taylor was kind of like, well, I have to implement the underlying level for the subsystems, like just for here's an Iron MQ driver, here's a whatever the other ones are. I think Beanstalk is that one of them? Yeah. So, like, he writes those for it and then they work. He doesn't have to support the other libraries that are written over top of it. Um, so I think that definitely helped, but you know, it's great that it's finally in there. Um, we don't use it at work yet. We still use like, uh, just here sidekick, drop this job off and do your stuff. Do you guys have like any sort of abstraction layer written around it to make it easier for you to drop something in after? I kind of feel like that is not as popular of a practice in the Ruby world with some of the code bases that I've seen anyways. Yeah, a lot of that stuff gets used pretty generically. I'm trying to think. We have like wrapping levels around things where you're never actually just calling Sidekick out in the middle of nowhere. There's some some class that's there to drop it in for you in a certain formatted way. So yeah, I think everything's pretty wrapped up in the system. Um, like I don't want to pretend like we wrote like our own wrapping layer like Active Job around it, but it's just like things are isolated and encapsulated. So we'll say that. 
You were saying before that you feel like there's kind of like two camps in the Ruby and Rails world where there's like the side that just embraces the DHH way. And then there's the other side that are more interested in like the hexagonal architecture and trying to decouple things from Rails and trying to write more plain Ruby code. Where do you kind of find yourself falling in that spectrum? Yeah, I I genuinely wonder if a lot of those purists actually do it. Because like I'll sit in there and if it's an enterprise system, I will say like, yeah, you should probably wrap this up a certain way. Um, for the side project that I'm working on right now, I don't care. Like I'm using Active Record in the controller willy nilly. Uh, if I want to change something somewhere, I will. Um, I use really basic things for forms. Like I just use the form for helper and drop things in, and my object knows how to populate those fields. Like that stuff doesn't bother me if it's just me. Um, the project is at work is a huge Rails app, so we tend to do things more of an OOD structure. But we still don't do things like um, the way that Matt Wynn presented in his uh, hexagonal Rails talk, for example, where, you know, it acts more like a Java OOP system. We still use like, hey, if this form object successfully creates, then redirect here. Um, It all happens in the controller. But we do create like form objects. We have decorators. We have a lot of service objects because that system is huge and does a whole lot of stuff and a lot of delayed work. So. There's a lot of OOP practices in place, but we're very pragmatic about it. Like we have a very diverse background. Like we have a lot of C sharp developers. Um, we have a couple of people who came from PHP. We have people who mostly did JavaScript. And then we have, we have like a PhD on the team now who does like a data scientist job. I don't think she's going to wind up doing a lot of coding, but I would love to see like how she approaches some of these problems. And, uh, then we have people who came from Lisp and Haskell and, you know, they think about things way differently, but everybody seems to like kind of focus in on a very pragmatic approach to where we know that something would be quote unquote perfect if we did a certain way, but we'll dial it back because it makes more sense for the team this way. I think like people uh, misdefine maybe perfect a lot of the time, like maybe perfect in in one particular quality by one particular measure of perfect. But a lot of the time, like you end up you know, over architecting things or, or focusing on things that don't actually deliver any business value. Like I know like kind of a weird problem that I've noticed in all program communities that I've been a part of is a lot of people talk about doing things a certain way. And then when I try and do things that certain way, I'll run into some really obvious problem or some really obvious hiccup in some way that no one is talking about online. And it makes me wonder if any of these people talking about doing things this way actually do it that way right like kind of like you said before i mean like one of the examples was when people started switching to the repository pattern for everything so they could stop testing the database well the reality is like you still have to test your repositories and you can't test repositories without testing the database if you're writing a test that is mocking out like your actual database object and setting all these like Demeter chain mock expectations where like this should receive the where method, then it should receive the and where method, then it should receive, you know, like all you're doing is duplicating the exact same logic that's, that you're going to implement in your test. And the only reason your test passes is because they're the same, not because the logic is necessarily right. You know I love what I mean? those tests. Love them. <laughs> so I don't know, just running into things like that is maybe question um, if some of the techniques that people talk about as being the one true way, the right way to do things are are actually as popular as they seem. And I'm not saying that to kind of like say anything bad about any of these people, but I think it has a negative impact on the community of 
kind of shaming people who maybe don't do it that way or aren't at the level where they can understand things that way. And, and people end up getting in way over their heads, trying to implement things in ways that they're not ready to understand. And they run into problems that no one can even help them with because the people who told them to do it that way haven't even done it that way themselves, you know? Right. And it just like perpetuates the uh, imposter syndrome super far down the chain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I think it happens both ways too. Like um, you're saying, I think it really it makes people feel kind of bad about themselves. If everyone's like, Oh, I do repository this, this, and this, but then like, I have to check myself too, because when everybody's like, I'm implementing repository for everything, no one's ever going to see this code, but it has to be right. And you know, like I kind of look at that. I'm like, "Eh, you're wasting a lot of time. And then Sean McCool made a blog post about it where like, you know, you shouldn't really make these people feel bad about themselves for trying to like learn and do things that way. But if somebody's like doing it just for the sake of learning and understanding it, I'm all for it. It's when someone is sitting there and they feel like they're a bad programmer because they don't do it this way. So they absolutely need to every time. I feel like there's some sort of barrier there for them. Like what if a new approach happens or I'm trying to think of the two patterns that like really conflict. It's tell, don't ask, and another one. Um, Single responsibility principle, kind yeah, of. Is that, is that the one? Yeah, that's what people would say. the ThoughtBot guys talk about that yeah. sometimes. So like all these principles don't actually work together super well. And if you look at the, the functional camp and the object-oriented camp, those principles don't work together at all half the time. Like you can mix them to make them work, but like at their, their top-level ideals, they are opposites. So, you know, it's... It's kind of a very consultanty answer, but like you have to do things based on the situation. You have to do what's right for you at that time. It doesn't mean it's going to be right next project at all. Like it could be complete opposite, but everything comes down to making trade offs and whatever trade offs work better in your favor at that time. And, you know, like software grows, it might not be right six months from now, but you worked with what you had at that time and it'll get you to the next step. Yeah, I totally agree. Like that's something that I've been trying to tell people a little bit more lately. And it's, it sounds like a cop-out answer, right? But it's really, really, really not a cop-out answer at all. Like I, I'm totally guilty of being one of those people where when I'm trying to learn about something new, I want to find like the checklist that tells me exactly how to do it. And this is always the right way. And it's going to end up with perfect code and I don't have to use my brain. And that's like not how it is. Anytime like you're deciding, um, making any decision about what strategy you're going to use for anything. You're making it based on the situation at the time and how you expect to have to maintain it in the future. And a lot of the time you're going to guess wrong, but hopefully as you get more experience and, and work on different things, you'll guess right more of the time than not, but there's still like no guarantee. Yeah. I think that's some of the best uh, lessons that a lot of the the books that are popular right now, like Growing Object Oriented Software, Guided by Tests, and uh, the DDD book is huge right now. Um, I love the concepts that DDD teaches as far as like how to actually achieve business goals because like that stuff, it's like kind of what you need to do, and it kind of works with like Clean Code and a few of the other books. But um, like I don't really subscribe to a lot of the uh, the common DDD patterns, like the command bus. That just it doesn't interest me, and it's never benefited me. But the stuff that Evans talks about is great. Like you make trade-offs for the time that you have right now. For the knowledge that you have, you build the best system you can. And if you follow the agile mindset where you get things out as soon as possible, you have all that time to gather feedback, learn what you need to change later, and then make that change. Um, I just find that that works best for software. Like it might not work for everybody and it probably won't work for like, uh, you know, flight software or something, but at the present time, I don't do anything that people's lives depend on. So 
it just seems best to iterate. I think another thing that kind of happens in the community is if you're someone who's trying to learn about some topic, like testing, for example, and all the people that are in the testing community already are really excited about one particular idea, they already have a lot of background knowledge about when that applies and they instinctively know when to not apply it. But to an outside observer who's just trying to learn about like testing in general, all they're going to hear about is whatever those people are excited about and they're going to think it applies in every case. And that is a problem that I've run into a million times. Like the best example I can give was um, learning about isolated testing, right? Learning about using test doubles and stuff. Any literature I would read on the subject, none of it ever explicitly said you should always use a test double for everything. You should always mock everything. But somehow I got that message in the back of my head and I don't know where it came from because when I went back and I tried to find an example of like, why did I think this? I couldn't find anything. And the only thing I can think of is that that's just what was loudest. And it's not that anyone said that's the way that you have to do things. It's just, that's what people were talking about. Like this is something you can do. And because that was louder than any of the maybe simpler stuff that people weren't as excited about since they had more experience in the field. I didn't hear about the simpler stuff. And I thought that that was the way I had to do everything. And I don't know what like the solution is to prevent other people from falling into that trap. Firstly, like I love your introspection and reflection on that. Cause that's probably the most uh, brilliant analysis of that I've, I've heard. So like that was really good. And I think that covers it. Um, as far as things you can do to prevent it, aside from just reading and man, I don't even want to say reading. I want to say actually like implementing tests um, until you find something that hurts. It's kind of hard to learn, right? Like at least for me, I have to actually get bitten by something to figure out like, okay, that it seemed like a really great idea at the time, but like down the road, it kind of came back to get me like mocking usually works out for me. I actually haven't been bitten by that too much, but when I can, I use the real object like 99% of the time I try to use the real object. Um, if it's a super complex construct object, I'll totally just mock it out. But, you know, like stubbing a method call, I just, I use the real class. Uh, so this is like a Ruby specific thing, but I use the real class and then I stub out the method. Um, mockery does allow you to do that pretty often, but when I can, I really try to use the real method, real object, real everything. Yeah. And the, the funny thing is that I think everyone who's experienced agrees with you, but no one puts that information out there in a blog post somewhere so that the people who are learning can find it because it just seems so obvious to them. So it's still like a split camp on that too. Like some people really love mocking, but some people have better mocking tools or they use the tools better. Um, so like one of the common things is that mocks fall out of uh, parity with the actual stuff. But if you keep something that can do like kind of a partial mock on it and properly represent those methods, it can probably work most of the time. There's, I want to say a lot of that, uh, a lot of the stuff that comes down to saying, I don't like mocks or maybe mocks are a bad thing comes from the camp that is more familiar with functional programming, where they want to make functionally pure methods that really won't have any side effects that they have to worry about. They can just test like data in data out. So I think depending on what your methods do, maybe mocking does make more sense because you wouldn't want Unless you're testing this method, like the actual actions of it, you don't want to fire off a save method on an active record object and then have that fire off the callbacks that are going to send email to the user or something like that. So like that stuff, I think it's all a dance. I think it's just right tool for the job. And I mean, in a perfect world, 
I feel like if you could just use the real instance for everything all the time, then you are never going to run into this problem of APIs falling out of sync or anything like that. But the trade-off to that is that sometimes things cause side effects, so you want to prevent those side effects from happening, or you want your tests to run faster. So you have to like acknowledge that every time like you're using a test double, like why are you using a test double? And it's not that that should be a hard question to answer. Uh, it's not that you have to have a really impressive answer or a really convincing answer. You just have to have some answer, not just because like I thought that's what I was supposed to do. You know what I mean? Just like any justification. It could be like, well, I could have used the real thing, but it had like four dependencies and that was like annoying to construct. That's a good enough answer. That's totally a good enough answer. But as long as you have a reason for it, you need to be able to justify it. You shouldn't just do things blindly, right? Right. Like that's something if I could just shake every new developer ever and instill that knowledge into them, I would do it because a lot of them get really overwhelmed. I I shouldn't even say a lot of them. All of us get overwhelmed by things. Like if we learn a new technology, sometimes we forget that it's just code. And we're like, this magic black box is totally shitting on me right now. I don't understand why it's breaking. And instead of like using the same knowledge that we've had for years, like let's check the compiler errors. Let's check an error log. Uh, Let's open Chrome dev tools to see what's happening. We just kind of panic for a little bit. And I think for the experienced developers, we do that like for very short amounts of time, or we kind of know that that panic is just a temporary thing. We can figure it out. But a lot of the times when I'm helping out uh, people in like IRC or whatnot, they kind of don't have that insight yet. They kind they don't really know how to listen to a compiler. They don't know how to listen to a runtime. Um, they don't know where to look for these simple errors. And it's just one of those things that I would love to like greet them with, be like, hey, this is all you need for programming, Google and understanding errors. You know, like things like that, like that's really it, right? Yeah, totally. Like, okay, let me look up the API. Like none of us have all this stuff memorized. We just go Google it later. So if, if I could get them to introspect on all the decisions that they make, like this hurts, why does it hurt? Well, I've changed this mock five times because I haven't solidified the interface yet. So maybe I shouldn't be using a mock here. Maybe I should just like simplify the object a little bit. As an added bonus, now I don't have to wait 10 seconds for Rails to start. Now I can just run the test on its own. And just as a caveat there, I don't want to say that this is a Rails-only problem. I've seen PHP tests get really slow, too, on the integration level. So like, just so people know, it's not a Rails-only problem. It's just Rails has the startup time issue. So. Yeah. Yeah. Back to kind of what you were talking about with the, um, you know, nobody knows all the answers to stuff. A lot of people will say, like... Uh, you know, you shouldn't feel like you have imposter syndrome. You know, you know more than you think you do, like give yourself more credit, that sort of thing. To me, it's like the total opposite. It's like, no, I actually don't know anything. But the reason I'm not an imposter isn't because I know more than I think I do. It's because no one else knows anything either, right? right? Like we're all on the same like playing field here. I've always wanted to do like a lightning talk at a conference or something where all I did was ask the audience questions and like raise, <laughs> raise your hand. If you've implemented Elasticsearch in production, raise your hand. If you haven't done this, raise your hand. If you haven't done this and every single person in the audience is going to raise their hand for something. Yeah. There's, there's a lot that I think humility can teach us. And then you have to balance that the humility with uh, not making yourself feel inferior. Cause you know, like sometimes like in different IRC channels, I'll hang out or in different forums, I'll go, look, like I really like to see what uh, some of the people are talking about in like the Emacs rooms or the closure rooms. And some of those people are so smart. Like they're working on like physics engines and like uh, some people are actually like working with like some crazy math I've never even heard of, you know? And 
they do different things with different technologies and I shouldn't feel inferior next to them. Um, I should just feel impressed. But sometimes I'm like, I don't understand computers, do I? Like, <laughs> I don't know how this stuff works. Or like every time I have to recompile something complicated from source and like GCC or LLVM chokes on something, I'm like, I think I knew this. I, I knew like a fraction of this at one point in college. I can't tell you how it works now. Like, I don't know why the linker's failing. I don't even remember what the linker accurately does half the time. <laughs> so, like, all that stuff, you know, it just goes down. Like, you're going to balance. You're going to find your part in the ecosystem, and you're probably going to get pretty good at that spot. But you're still not going to know everything. And then when you move to a different area, you're going to be a beginner again. And it's just one of those things that I think we have to um, kind of embrace as part of our culture as computer scientists or just regular developers, where everything it grows so fast. Like look at how many JavaScript frameworks we have. We're not going to learn all those. We're not going to learn every PHP framework. We're certainly not going to learn every language. So it's okay for us to like jump back into the newbie shoes for a little bit, make asses out of ourselves while we're trying to learn it, like ask a whole bunch of embarrassing questions. But I think the one thing that you learn as you go around is you don't have to start off asking the embarrassing questions. You can read a tech manual now because you're going to understand how to read it after a little bit. Then you can go back in and ask slightly better embarrassing questions, or at least phrase it a little bit differently, right? So like you kind of work your way back up the chain every time, and you just have to get comfortable with the fact that it's an endless cycle. Like You'll start off a little bit better each time, but you're still going to suck. Like When I started learning CoffeeScript... It's fine with JavaScript. Somehow CoffeeScript confused the shit out of me. So like, <laughs> I'm like, what does this fat arrow do? I use that incorrectly for probably three months, you know? And I just like, use the fat arrow all the time. <laughs> <laughs> you can never go wrong. It, everything will just work. <laughs> <laughs> so like, th things like that that you figure out after a while. You're like, okay, now I get it. Or you can get guidance from people. You can try things. You don't have to be an expert. Eventually something is going to tell you, whoops, like this was completely wrong. Hopefully you figure it out sooner than later, but you know, it's fine. Like you, you have to start somewhere. Like I'm trying to learn, uh, two different Lisp dialects right now. And I feel like, I feel silly half the time. Cause I'm not great at thinking purely functional and like, not that Lisp is purely functional, but I try to do it that way. And like Elisp is dynamically scoped by default. I've never worked in a dynamically scoped language. So I'm like totally toddling around just hoping I don't break something. Yeah. So I, I don't know anything about Lisp or I've never used any functional languages. Like the closest I've got is watching a couple presentations or kind of observing a little bit of syntax, but it's all a totally new world to me. So yeah. you can totally work your way in though with uh, JavaScript because you can do a lot of very functional ish things with JavaScript. And then uh, even Ruby's pretty functionally influenced, like Elisp inspired Ruby. I think some scheme dialect influenced it along with like Algol and all the other ones. So, you know, like there's different ways to start experimenting with like the functional world without diving in head first. Like if I jumped into Haskell right now, I would probably cry. Um, I wish I could understand that right now, but it's just not one of those things I'm ready to spend the time on. I want to someday, but I've just always wanted to learn a Lisp and Clojure is like mainstream Lisp. So there's libraries for it. So it's like, yeah, I could totally do this. I don't know if you keep up with the JavaScript world at all, but they have uh, immutable data structures for it now that are based off the closure ones. Oh, really? Yeah, they're they're like really fast for this kind of stuff. Um, I can't remember if React uses any at the core, but I think the the name of the one library is 
Midori or Miori or something like that. Um, but those implement what closure has. And then there's another one that's just like immutable JS that has immutable sets and maps and things like that. So there's some bleed over, like people are adopting these, these different concepts. And I think that as we learn more, we can start integrating them in kind of acceptable and like beneficial ways. Like you always run the risk of uh, slowing down your runtime. If you do something that's not made for like some language that's not optimized for tail recursion, you don't want to start throwing that in if you're going to blow the stack, but you know, there's different things you can learn, like passing anonymous functions around lambdas are actually really awesome. And one fact that I learned is actually like the strategy pattern was made to compensate for not having lambdas available, which like that blew my mind when I thought of it. I was like, hey, you know what? That kind of makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, so like there's all these things that we have, like the Java gave us that were actually compensations for lacking the structures that were available in other languages. So like I think if people keep these things in mind as well, like these were trade-offs from language X, but maybe language X actually did it in a really good way. So maybe it wasn't wrong. Maybe it's just like a different approach. I can tell you what language doesn't do something in a really good way. Yeah. That's how PHP handles closures. (laughs) (sighs) You know, (laughs) I I have so many opinions on that. And I'm so, I've tried to like tone back on it because I gave it so much shit for the first probably like two years they were available. I'm like, this is not a closure. This is a Lambda. I think it was a hack the hack language they call lambdas closures and closures are called lambdas they're backwards on the documentation page i don't know if they fixed it but i flipped my lid when i read that i was like no no this is the worst language ever done (laughs) well at least they have real closures whatever they call them is fine with me yeah i think the swift language actually um has an import on scope as well but that's a statically compiled language so there could be constructs there that are understandable but yeah there's just all this cool stuff that we can all learn one day and come back and make fun of the languages we use all the time. And then we'll just keep building CRUD apps with active record. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the sad truth of it all. Exactly. <laughs> oh man. Is there anything, any other random, totally unrelated things you want to talk about? Mm, had something earlier. Can't remember it now. <laughs> so what's the best way for people to like get in touch with you or, or follow you online or, you know, check out what you're interested in? Uh, Twitter, IRC, and GitHub. I am Machuga. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. Awesome, man. Well, uh, yeah, thanks a ton for coming on and chat with me. It's been super awesome. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. Hopefully we'll get this up in the next couple of days and people can listen to us complain and laugh about stupid things. And then correct <laughs> us later in the comments. Yeah, totally. Cool, man. See ya.